Strangers, do you remember what the worst thing about the pandemic was? Aside from the fear of dying, from a suffocating virus, that is. It was the loneliness, the lack of normal social engagement, the isolation. People struggled. Depression abounded. There was a lot of online shopping. Imagine, if you can, how on earth we all would have gotten by without Netflix and Instacart. Or, for that matter, our favorite podcasts, like this one, which, by the way, has recently started our very own Patreon, where you can enjoy ad-free weekly episodes plus three additional bonus episodes every month. To check it out, go to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who sometimes likes animals more than people. Sometimes. Human social interaction, connection to society and culture are so crucial to our mental health that we will hold Zoom parties and stand outside a friend's window while wearing a mask to talk to them. Social expectations can be oppressive at times, yes, but when it comes down to it, those same social mores can ground us. What happens to us when we can't find a way to ground ourselves? How do we keep from floating away? The Isle of Man is a tiny island in the Irish Sea, about halfway between Northern Ireland and Northern England. It is only about 227 square miles of mostly lonely, desolate farmland. In other words, my dream home. In the 1930s, when our story takes place, the population of the Isle of Man was 51,000. According to a piece from Fate magazine published in 1970, quote, For a short time in the summer months, the island is inundated with holiday visitors from what Manxmen call the adjacent island, England. The rest of the year, man is a fairly lonely place to live, especially if you happen to be on one of the rocky little farms that dot the countryside, end quote. Manxmen! It is on one of those rocky little farms that our story takes place. The farm, called Dorlish Cashin in Manx, or Cashin's Gap in English, had sat on the countryside for decades. In their book A Haunting at Cashin's Gap, published in 1936, famed ghost hunter Harry Price and R.S. Lambert paint this picture. Quote, Beyond the village post office, a stony path parts from the road and winds up among the hills. At last, after about an hour of scrambling ascent, the path turns a fold in the downs and terminates rather suddenly before Dawlish Cashin. The farmstead, perched upon a treeless, shrubless slope, seems utterly isolated from the world. No cart can reach it, no other farm is visible from it, and its nearest neighbor lies a mile away. End quote. And I feel guilty for moving my family to Rhode Island. The house at Cashin's Gap Farm was a small two-story stone farmhouse with no electricity or telephone. Wooden walls had been added at some point on the inside of the house to provide more insulation, so small animals could easily traverse the house through the gap between the wood and stone walls. In 1916, James Irving, a former traveling piano salesman from Liverpool, and his wife Margaret moved to the farm at Cashin's Gap. 
James Irving was described by Fate magazine and American Weekly, respectively, as, quote, well-educated, always neatly dressed, and a farmer whose hands remained clean and uncalloused, end quote, and, quote, as a hearty, talkative, normal sort of person who, in his younger days, had seen much of the world, end quote. James and Margaret had a daughter named Voirie sometime around 1919. The American Weekly declared that both Margaret and their young daughter Voirie had, quote, the strikingly unusual eyes which so often go with the psychic type, that is, the kind of person usually found somewhere around any premises on which weird things happen, end quote. Hard-hitting journalism there, folks. The article continued, quote, The mother's eyes are said to be wide open, burning, almost fierce. Her pretty daughters are half-closed, half-sullen, and wholly mysterious, end quote. I mean, have you ever met a teenage girl who wasn't at least half-sullen? Voiri and her dog Mona, a three-year-old collie, had a preternatural relationship. As a team, the pair were excellent rabbit hunters. As the American Weekly put it, Mona, the dog, was psychic and would hypnotize the rabbits for Voiri to murder. While the dog apparently held the rabbit's attention by mesmerism, Voiri would sneak behind the rabbit and whack it on the head with a club, killing it. But, dear stranger, this episode is not called Clubbing Bunnies, nor is it called Mona the Psychic Dog. Nay, a psychic dog was one of the lesser weird things that would transpire at Cashin's Gap. In September of 1931, when Voiri was 12 years old, the Irvings started hearing a strange sound, seemingly coming from the space between the walls of their house. At first, unsure of what kind of animal was tapping and knocking at their walls, James Irving later told psychic researchers Harry Price and R.S. Lambert, We were first made aware of its presence in September last by its barking, growling, spitting, and persistent blowing which I understand is the procedure of the weasel family. Its first sounds were those of an animal nature, and it used to keep us awake at night for a long time as sleep was not possible. And while most would hunt the animal down and exterminate it, perhaps, say, by having their dog hypnotize it and their preteen daughter bludgeon it to death, James had other ideas. He said... It occurred to me that if it could make these weird noises, why not others? And I proceeded to give imitations of the various calls domestic and other creatures make in the country, and I named these creatures after every individual call. You know, like you do when you discover a rodent in your walls. Eep, eep, guinea pig, and so on. In just a matter of days, James claimed to have trained the animal to make specific animal calls on command. One had only to name the particular animal or bird, and instantly, always without error, gave the correct call. But it wasn't until October 20th that anyone caught a glimpse of the animal. According to Price and Lambert, it was, quote, a yellow and brown rat-like animal with a long bushy tail, end quote. After seeing it for the first time, Voiri began singing nursery rhymes to the animal, who, in short order, repeated them back to her. Yes, the animal could talk. James told Price and Lambert, the voice is quite two octaves above any human voice, clear and distinct, but lately it can and does come down to the range of the human voice. 
Now, anyone who's ever had occasion to watch how a baby acquires language will recognize the next step in the progression of sounds supposedly emanating from the rodent in the Irving's walls. As Christopher Joseph, writing for the Fortean Times, reported in 2010, quote, the entity quickly progressed to something more sophisticated. Having learned to mimic various animal noises, it then began to repeat nursery rhymes, and within a short while, having built up a sufficiently wide vocabulary, it could converse with the family. Its voice is said to have been loud, clear, and one or two octaves higher than a human's. Other witnesses describe it as a very high screechy sort, end quote. But how could it be, the Irvings wondered, that an animal who, as far as anyone knew, wasn't making any kind of human sounds, screechy or not, a few months ago, could now converse fluently in English? And again, it seems the awe is slightly misplaced. I mean, once a rodent is singing nursery rhymes, I don't think the mystery is how did it learn to speak so quickly, right? The mystery is how the fuck is a rodent singing nursery rhymes? The answer to the mystery of the weasel's proficiency in English came straight from the weasel's mouth. Why he'd been listening to people speak English for all of his 80 years of life. But according to the American Weekly, quote, only recently had tried the comparatively easy accomplishment of speaking it out loud, end quote. I suppose it might be like a child who's experiencing delayed speech and then all of a sudden, at age five, is speaking in full, complete sentences like nothing ever happened. Except in that case, we generally expect a human five-year-old to speak, whereas with a weasel, well, generally we do not. But also, 80 years, 80 years. Do you know what the average life expectancy is for a weasel? 18 months. The weasel claimed, in English, that it was 80 years old. By early 1932, word of the talking weasel on the Isle of Man had spread to Manchester. The Manchester Daily Dispatch sent a reporter all the way out to Cashin's Gap to cover the amazing story. And, stranger, I'm not even going to attempt a Mancunian accent. He wrote... Quote, the mysterious man-weasel of Dorlish Cashin has spoken to me today. Investigation of the most remarkable animal story that has ever been given publicity, a story which is finding credence all over the island, leaves me in a state of considerable perplexity. Had I heard a weasel speak? I do not know. But I do know that I have heard today a voice which I should never have imagined could issue from a human throat that the people who claim it was the voice of the strange weasel seem sane, honest, and responsible folk and not likely to indulge in a difficult, long, drawn-out, and unprofitable practical joke to make themselves the talk of the world, that others had had the same experience as myself." End quote. The reporter was very impressed with what he'd heard at the farm and reported that the weasel gave him a good betting tip on a horse race at the Grand National. Though it seems, again, while people were like, wow, he learned to talk so quickly, no one was like, how the fuck does he know what horses are racing at a track in England? Now, one can't go around addressing such a remarkable animal as that thing that lives in our walls and has tips on the races, or hey you, weasel guy. And so, at some point in 1932, the weasel was given a name. 
According to family friend Arthur Morrison in a letter to parapsychologist Nandor Fodor, quote, To start with, during February and the beginning of March 1932, I heard a good deal about what was termed at the time a talking weasel. I ridiculed the whole affair at first. Interest of the people concerned with amusement in the foreground, I decided to visit Dawlish Cashin with the main object of exposing the whole joke, if there was one, on the 7th March 1932. On my arrival at Mr. Irving's farmhouse, a screeching voice said, Hello, Arthur! To which I replied, Hello. It then said, Call me Jeff. I am an earthbound spirit. Before I saw you, I was going to blow your brains out with a 3D cartridge, but I like you now. I'm not sure what a 3D cartridge is, but I am reasonably certain it is a firearm, and how a weasel intended to lift a gun, I'll never know. Anyway, in February of 1932, Harry Price, who was at the time director of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, wrote to James Irving about the extraordinary goings-on he'd heard rumors of at the farm at Cashin's Gap. In one of his first letters of reply to Price, Irving wrote, The animal in question had been seen by myself and daughter of 14 Fuari in one of the two bedrooms of my house on several occasions in the month of October last the colour is yellow, not too pronounced after the ferret. The tail is long and bushy and tinged with brown. In size, it is about the length of a three-parts grown rat in the body without the tail. It can and does pass through a hole of about one and a half inches diameter. I personally am strongly inclined to the view that it is a hybrid between a stoat and a ferret. My daughter says the face is all yellow and the shape is more of that of a hedgehog but flattened at the snout, after the fashion of a domestic pig. It is not a prisoner, and I have no control whatever over its movements, and I can never tell whether it is in or not. It announces its presence by calling either myself or my wife. By our Christian names, it apparently can see in the dark and describe the movements of my hand. Its hearing powers are phenomenal. It's no use whispering. It detects a whisper 15 to 20 feet away, tells you that you are whispering, and repeats exactly what one has said. Price decided to send a proxy to investigate the scene. Turns out he was too busy traipsing around the UK as the most prominent psychic researcher of his time. He sent one Captain McDonald, who was a well-known race car driver, businessman, and member of the National Laboratory Council. McDonald returned from his visit with this account. They showed me various cracks and holes in the woodwork of the room which the animal used, so they said, to see who was there. We sat and talked until just about 11.45pm, and as nothing had taken place, I suggested making my way back to Glen May. Mr. Irving said he thought he had better pilot me home, so we put on our overcoats and set forth. Just as I had shut the door of the house, we heard a very shrill voice from inside scream out, Go away! Who is that man? Mr. Irving gripped my arm and said, That's it! I heard the shrill voice continuing, but was unable to catch exactly what it was saying. We remained outside for five minutes, but I was so cold that I told Mr. Irving that I must either go in again or go down the hill. 
We decided to go in, so I stalked back and quietly got in the room when the voice at once ceased. The following day, Captain McDonald tried to get Jeff to show himself, to which Jeff replied, No, I don't mean to stay long, as I don't like you. In his report back to Price, McDonald ultimately concluded that he had never seen the animal and that both Mrs. Irving and Voiree were always upstairs when he heard the weasel speak, and that what evidence he did gather was not of much value. Despite that, Price sent McDonald back to Cashin's Gap for a second look. And this time, McDonald's report included this. The voice then started in earnest, and the noise in the house was amazing. Shrill screams accompanied by terrific knocking. Loud bangs emanated from all parts of the house in quick succession, as if the perpetrator moved with lightning speed. The noise continued for about 15 minutes, culminating with tremendous bangs, as if something had been thrown with great violence upstairs. As I was returning down the staircase and just entering the kitchen, a bottle and a china tray were flung from the top of the staircase, the latter being smashed in the fall. This was accompanied by a derisive laugh. I again examined Vari's door. It was fastened. The commotion continued well into the night, and around 3 a.m., Jeff taunted McDonald. The voice then said, I'll throw pebbles now at the window. And almost at once we heard the rattle against them, just as if gravel and sand and small stones were being hurled at them. Mrs. Irving got rather perturbed and told Jeff to stop, as she did not want the windows to be broken. In addition to throwing stuff and breaking china, Jeff also liked to tease humans by offering up contradicting versions of his own origin story. Depending on who asked and when, and I don't know, just like what mood Jeff was in when he gave varying answers, he reported, I am an earthbound spirit. I am not a spirit. I am a little extra, extra clever mongoose. I am a ghost in the form of a weasel, and I shall haunt you with weird noises and clanking chains. I'll split the atom. I am the fifth dimension. I am the eighth wonder of the world. But apparently the issue was decided when, as American Weekly reported it, quote, a Manx woman hearing of the talking animal sent word that it couldn't be a weasel but must be a mongoose because she had heard that a mongoose could be taught to talk. Jeff confirmed this theory by saying that he had always been a mongoose. Well... (laughs) There you go. That clears it up. It turns out that some farmers had brought mongoose to the island from Delhi to help control the rabbit population, and it's possible James Irving himself was one of these farmers. The American Weekly reported this, quote, When Jeff was asked if he was descended from these, he informed them that he was one of the original ones and had been born in Delhi on June 7, 1852. Now, I will grant you that a mongoose's life expectancy is longer than that of an ordinary weasel, but it's still only 7 to 12 years, not 80. Now armed with his name and backstory, the Irvings came to value Jeff as an intimate member of the family. 
Jeff and Voirie in particular were quite close, and Jeff slept in Voirie's room, shared food with her, and would accompany her to the fields where he would allegedly throw stones at anyone who tried to talk to her. He would even help Voirie hunt rabbits. But Jeff also had a bit of a salty streak. As the Fortean Times reported it, quote, Often, though, he appeared to delight in tormenting the Irving parents, once throwing stones at Margaret as she walked home, and, on another occasion, losing his temper when Jim took too long opening the morning paper, crying out, Read it out, you fat-headed gnome! He would also apparently laugh all day. <laughs> possessing, according to Price and Lambert, quote, an extensive repertoire of laughs, end quote. James explained it to Price and Lambert this way. Sometimes it resembles the tittering laugh of a precocious or mischievous child. <laughs> At other times, I would say it was the chuckling laugh of an aged person. <laughs> Another distinct type is one which I would say was satanic laughter or the laughter of a maniac. <laughs> we all have a most intense dislike to this last laughter as it is very trying. But fortunately, we do not get this kind very often. But it wasn't all dead rabbits and weird, maniacal laughter. In either a letter or a diary entry, it isn't clear which, James wrote this. Early in 1932, when my daughter and I were alone in the house in broad daylight, I saw, to my surprise, a very large cat, striped like a tiger, I thought this is no ordinary cat, so I slipped a cartridge into my single barrel gun. The cat was a little ahead of me, but easily within range, and it turned through an open gateway into a grass field. I was there a few seconds behind and fully expected to see the cat, but no cat could be seen look as I liked. I detailed my experiences to my wife on her return that night when Jeff called out, It was me you saw, Jim! And there were other stories of people feeling phantom cats jumping onto their laps or pieces of discarded bread being picked up and moved by some invisible force or people having stones thrown at them from culprits who couldn't be seen. And then in 1933, the Irvings learned that Jeff could read, though how they thought Jeff knew horse racing stats way back in early 32 if he wasn't reading the racing forms, I don't know. But in 33, he was calling out the names of books or papers the Irvings were reading in the house. And once, while James was reading the paper, Jeff cried, I see a name that makes me quake, that makes me shake! It was an obituary for a man named Jeffrey, or Jeff for short. So it wasn't so much that he could read as it was that he was clearly histrionic and melodramatic. According to a piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books, quote, a quick study, Jeff not only spoke English, but in time also picked up other languages, including bits of French, German, Yiddish, Flemish, Spanish, and Hebrew, end quote. Though how on earth he was being exposed to all these languages on a remote farm inhabited by three people who apparently only spoke English, we don't know. Even if the rumors that Jeff would hitch a ride on a bus into town frequently were true, I highly doubt that on a British island with about 50,000 people, the population included people who spoke French, German, Yiddish, Flemish, Spanish, and Hebrew. I mean, Yiddish and Hebrew? 
Jeff was also, it turns out, a chanteur of sorts, often singing along to whatever was playing on the gramophone. His favorite song was Carolina Moon. But he also sang the Manx National Anthem, as well as, oddly enough, Spanish folk songs. And once he sang a raunchy version of Home on the Range, to which Mrs. Irving exclaimed, You know, Jeff, you are no animal. And he replied, Of course I am not. I am the Holy Ghost. Well, that escalated quickly. But as naughty, crafty, and toonsome as he was, Jeff remained frustratingly elusive to behold. He claimed he was terrified of being caught and put in a bottle, so he stayed hidden most of the time. Even Mrs. Irving hadn't ever seen Jeff. He only allowed her to put her hand through a hole in the wall, upon which he allegedly gripped her finger tightly, and once he let her feel his teeth, at which point he bit her hard enough to draw blood. And even though they shared food and he accompanied her into the fields, Voiry also hadn't had a full glimpse of Jeff. Even so, she somehow managed to make a drawing of Jeff, of which he apparently approved. And despite his supposed elusiveness in the flesh, plenty of people were able to describe him. According to American Weekly, quote, Those who saw Jeff said he had a bushy tail like a squirrel's, yellow to brownish fur, small ears, and a pushed-in face. His most often described features were his front paws, which, according to the Irvings, were hand-like with three fingers and a thumb, end quote. Then, in 1935, Jeff deigned to let Wari take his photo, which is a big leap. He went from not really letting anyone see him at all to sitting down for a photo sesh. We'll post the photos on our socials and you can tell me, but I googled Indian mongoose and that ain't it. Captain McDonald had been making regular pilgrimages on Harry Price's behalf to Cashin's Gap to study Jeff for about three years, when finally, in 1935, Price decided McDonald had gathered enough preliminary data and that it was time for he himself to go visit the talking rodent. Jeff was not thrilled about this new arrangement, and he allegedly said, I like Captain McDonald, but not Harry Price. He's the man who puts the kibosh on the spirits. Okay, I guess he could speak Yiddish. Despite Jeff's protestations, Price visited the Irvings and brought along BBC journalist Richard Lambert as a witness. According to Price's autobiography, Jeff refused to appear or at all entertain Price and Lambert. However, in his Fate magazine piece, Walter McGraw wrote that Jeff, quote, made a wee-wee on a great big psychical investigator and screamed... Go away, clear to hell. We don't want you here. I mean, I understand the impulse, but I can't imagine who he could have been referring to if not Price. But it seems Price doesn't make mention of this episode in his own account. Price and Lambert left without any clear evidence or proof of the existence of a talking rodent. 
But once they were gone, Jeff agreed to give hair samples and impressions of his teeth and paws for examination. Upon investigating the hairs, Mr. F. Martin Duncan of the Zoological Society declared, I can very definitely say that the specimen hairs never grew upon a mongoose, nor are they those of a rat, rabbit, hare, squirrel, or other rodent. I am inclined to think that these hairs have probably been taken from a longish-haired dog. Indeed, it turned out that Jeff's hair was practically identical to the Irving's dog, Mona's hair. As for the paw prints, it seems that the front and rear paws were of differing sizes, the front being kinda gargantuan and weirdly human for a 30-centimeter creature. When the paw prints were sent to the Zoological Society for analysis, they were like, "Mm, no such thing. They said the prints made it look like the animal's skin was unlike that of any other animal. Basically, it seemed like perhaps the Irvings had created Jeff's so-called paw prints with a stick. Yikes. As for any photos of Jeff, the general consensus was that the photos were not of Jeff at all, but were either images of a stuffed animal, a cat, or an old fox stole artfully arranged to approximate a mongoose. Price and Lambert published their book, The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, a modern miracle investigated in 1936 and remained neutral as to the question of whether there really was a talking mongoose out on the Irving's farm. However, in Price's private writings, he was inclined to admit it was all likely a hoax, the motive for which he was unsure but guessed it may have sprung from the family's loneliness that sparked a shared delusion. However, there was another major player in the world of psychical research who had not yet had his chance to weigh in. Parapsychologist and psychoanalyst Nander Fodor, whom Arthur Morrison had written to upon having his own experience with Jeff way back in 32. TBH, it doesn't look like Fodor ever actually visited the Irvings or did any of his own investigation, but rather relied on whatever reporting was available to him from others. Fodor's findings are some hydroxychloroquine-level nonsense. Basically, Fodor was like, yeah, I know it doesn't seem probable, but, like, we have pictures of him. And people say he can hear and see real good. According to Cliff Willett, author of the blog Jeff, the Eighth Wonder of the World, Fodor concluded, Remarkable animals are known to have existed before Jeff. The Eberfield horses could extract cube roots and communicate thoughts by striking and code with their hooves. Dogs have been taught to read and spell. Birds can speak the human tongue. But never has there been an animal as remarkable as Jeff. Do I believe in him? I have examined the evidence. I have tried all the possible solutions I could think of. None of them answers the case. All the evidence is in favor of Jeff's being a talking animal. I have not seen him. He did not talk to me. He claimed to be an animal. I cannot disprove that claim. I mean, what? How do I? It's... Okay, so you, I hope, and I, stranger, are a little more discerning than our buddies Nandor and Cliff, and we're not just going to be like, Jeff said he's real, obvi he's real. 
But then what was he or she or they? Well, some believe Jeff was a poltergeist because, as everyone knows, teenage girls attract poltergeists, what with their periods and whatnot. Others believe the farm was haunted by someone or something buried there some years before, as bolstered by stories of workers finding an urn filled with black ashes on the property. And the Fortean Times recounted a story that when the Irvings moved in, they hired a couple of people who James described as respectable, sober individuals to help renovate, one of whom said, Look here, John, I cannot sleep in that room. I've heard strange noises, and there was something uncanny about the place. But our boy Nander Fodor dismissed the theory that Jeff was a poltergeist because he said so, basically. He later wrote, The problem of mental starvation for a man of Irving's intelligence must have been even more serious. There was no way to relieve it by conscious means, so his unconscious took care of the job and produced the strange hybrid of Jeff, fitting no category of humans, animals, or ghosts, yet having common features with all of them. Had Irving been a student of physical research, the development of Jeff would have proceeded, I believe, on more occult lines. Which, of course, would mean that even though Jeff may have been a manifestation of James's loneliness, he was also somehow seen and heard by others, a phenomenon known in some psychical circles as a tulpa. Others believe that Jeff was a hoax perpetrated by Voirie. As early as January 1932, that theory was floated by the reporter with the Daily Dispatch who claimed he saw Voirie moving her lips while Jeff was speaking. It's hard to believe that a 12-year-old was so adept at ventriloquism that she could throw her voice clear across the house or be heard when she was way out in the fields when Captain McDonald claimed to have heard Jeff inside the house. Then again, Voirie had proven herself adept at killing rabbits, which just so happened to end up being the thing that the magical mongoose was also good at. Others believe it was a hoax perpetrated by both mother and daughter Irving in an attempt to drive their patriarch James to sell the farm and move the family back to the mainland. Though, Lord knows, if you've read Lysistrata, you know there are easier ways to get a man to do what you want him to do than cook up an elaborate hoax about a cantankerous talking rodent. Price and Lambert tried to get Voirie out on a boat with them without her father to see if they could get independent information from her, but suspiciously, James wouldn't let them. Yeah, bro, I wouldn't let two dudes take my teenage daughter out on a boat without me either. That's not suspicious. It's called parenting. Still others suggested that Voirie invented Jeff as a way to protect herself from her father, implying that perhaps her father had been molesting her. However, there was zero evidence of anything like this going on, although, as we all know, that doesn't necessarily mean nothing was going on. Colin Dickey of the LA Review of Books suggested this, quote, "'It's possible that Jeff was an amalgamation of many of these things, within a fractured, hermetic, and isolated family, strained by intrafamilial tensions and psychological pressure, a mercurial and malleable entity emerges that can negotiate these tensions and serve as an outlet and scapegoat as needed. End quote. 
Jeff slowly faded from the Irvings' lives, leaving for good sometime around 1938 or 39. James died in 1945, and Mrs. Irving and Voiree got the hell off that rock as fast as they could, moving back to mainland England. The next year, the new owner of Cashin's Glen claimed to have caught and bludgeoned poor Jeff to death for disturbing his chickens. Voiree, for her part, insisted Jeff wasn't a hoax for the remainder of her life. She told Fate magazine in 1970, I was shy. I still am. Jeff made me meet people I didn't want to meet. Then they said I was a mentor or a ventriloquist. Believe me, if I was that good, I would jolly well be making money from it now. Jeff was very detrimental to my life. We were snubbed. The other children used to call me the spook. I had to leave the Isle of Men, and I hope that no one where I work now ever knows the story. Jeff has even kept me from getting married. How could I ever tell a man's family about what happened? To which the reporter, McGraw, replied by asking her if Jeff was indeed a mongoose. I don't know. I know he was a small animal about nine inches to a foot long. I know he talked to us from the wainscoting. His voice was very high-pitched. He swore a lot. At first, he talked to me more than anyone. We carried on regular conversations. Yes, there was a little animal who talked and did all those other things. He said he was a mongoose and said we should call him Jeff. But I do wish he had let us alone. And so, strangers, as we reach the end of the story of Jeff, the maybe-talking mongoose, and ask ourselves if it's true or a hoax, the question that echoes loudest in my mind is, does it matter? On the surface, the story of Jeff and the Irvings is curious, but underneath the novelty of it is a story of isolation. The Irvings probably needed Jeff more than that preternaturally long-lived, cantankerous man-rodent needed them. As Colin Dickey pointed out, the Irvings were most likely fractured, hermetic, and isolated. Those who have experienced extreme isolation can tell you that no matter how bad a situation seems, isolation is always worse. And we all know it is possible to be alone in the company of others. If any of us, strangers, were to remove ourselves from society to a desolate and distant location, how long would it be before we, too, started weaving tall tales, or conversing with earthbound spirits, or perhaps even befriending crotchety, well-traveled, multilingual rodents who claim to be the Holy Ghost? Let's not find out, eh? Next time on Strange and Unexplained. It's not unusual to learn about a mythical creature that terrorized people back in the old days, but what about one that left chaos and mayhem in our lifetime? Hide your goats, hide your wife from the Chupacabra. Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. Or for $7, you get those three bonus episodes plus... All the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by the amazing Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop. Editing by Eve Kerrigan. Sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, 
Ryan Garcia, and Jordan Kai Burnett. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Join us on Facebook at SNU Pod and head on over to our Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. A five-star review and a quick one-sentence blurb really does help us out a lot. If you don't like the show, you can give a scathing review. The name of the podcast is The Flat Earth Reality.